For many today, Jesus is doing his part in the relationship. He loves us incredibly so. But on our end, we only claim to love him. Claiming to love Jesus and actually loving him with all your heart are two very different lifestyles. Opening verse, Psalm 119. And we'll just read this one verse, and then I'll ask you to take your seats. Psalm 119, verse 18, which says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You may now take your seats. Now, as you may all know, the title of this sermon is The Time Traveler. The time traveler. Now, this power of traveling through time, it is by far probably one of the most appealing powers one could think of. To be able to travel back in time means you have the ability to experience any significant event in history. Now, even just within the pages of Scripture, there are so many events within the Bible that I wish I can personally witness. You know, the, the six days of creation, the flood that destroyed every living, living thing with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals, the parting of the Red Sea, the slaying of Goliath, the story of Samson slaying 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. There are so many events that I wish I could just travel back in the time so I can witness. Now, the ability, the power of traveling through time is not contained with just going back to the past, but it gives you the ability to go into the future, to travel into the future, to go 40 years in the future and to see yourself in 40 years and see what you look like. Maybe you have a family, maybe you have children. See how you look like in 40 years after aging. See what the world is like. Now, a large amount of people, if they were given the power to travel through time, would most likely use it for Personal gain, financial gain, people would go back into the future and see what stocks to invest in and see uh, maybe the winning lottery numbers. And then they go back into the present and invest in those things and get rich. Some people may go back to their past. They've, they fix their past mistakes. They change the course of history so that it fits their personal interest. And that's exactly why the power of time travel has not been given to us by God. Because we would abuse it. So why did I name this sermon the time traveler? Who in scripture traveled through time? Now, one man was given the opportunity to travel into the future. Well, not literally. But he gave a certain man, God gave a certain man in the New Testament the opportunity to see the future of mankind. And as some of you may have guessed, this man is the Apostle John. John was able to do what we wish we could do. He was able to see the future. And it may not be the future that he, he may have wanted to see, but he saw all the details of it. And it's recorded in the book of Revelation. Now, rather than focusing on the Revelation itself, Rather than focusing on the eschatological events, because it's too vast to cover in one lesson anyway, I would like to focus on the time traveler. 
I would like to focus tonight on the Apostle John. Now I ask myself this, out of all the godly men at that time, and there were many, why was this special revelation given to a lowly man like the Apostle John? Tonight's sermon will serve as a character study on this apostle. What was it about him that gave him good favor in the sight of God? What was, what was it about John that God was, wanted to give that, this heavenly vision to him? Now, I believe that if we imitate the attributes, the defining attributes that John had, then I believe that our eyes too will be opened to behold wondrous things. Now, in no way am I saying that if we do these, if we copy the life of John, I'm not saying that God will give us future revelation and God will give us special revelation. In no way am I saying that because prophecy, as you see in 1 Corinthians 13, it's done away with. We have the full canon of Scripture. But I am saying that there are many layers there are many depths to our faith, to our Christian faith, that we have never understood because of our spiritual inadequacy and because of our shortcomings. Now turn with me to Luke 24:45. Luke 24:45, and you don't have to read it with me, but it says, "Then opened he their understanding." that they might understand the scriptures. The Christian life, it is not up to us to open our own understanding. We're not to go out into our desk and to just kind of, and, and plead that our, our, our understanding will just open up by itself. Because the Bible says that understanding is given to us by God. It is God who is responsible for illuminating the truths of the Bible. God is the one who allows us to be able to read the Bible and be able to understand and comprehend the truths of it. There's a difference between reading the Bible with your own power and reading the Bible filled with the Spirit and asking God for understanding. There's a, there's a world of difference. The great truths of Scripture will never be opened to those who have filled themselves up with wickedness, with darkness. That's why a lot of unsaved people, they try to pick apart the Bible. They try to criticize it. They try to find errors. And they find all of these supposed errors and inconsistencies. But in truth, they don't really understand a quarter of what they've just mentioned. Because their heart is so filled with darkness, but yet they criticize it. Much of all of the great truths of Scripture will only be understood by godly men and women. And so if we imitate the Apostle John, I believe that our eyes will be open to behold wondrous things out of God's law. But before we get into the stages of John's life, let us just begin in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, speak through me tonight. I pray that you will help me preach with power, with all humility, and with all love. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of those listening tonight. I pray again that I preach your words and not mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now this first stage, or our first point, we see the son of thunder. 
we see the son of thunder, the earlier stages of John's life. Back in those days, John was a common Greek name, all right? Well, in Greek, his name would actually be Giannis. And in English, it's actually a common English name as well. You see John's everywhere. My name is the Russian form of John. Johan is a German version of John, and so, et cetera, et cetera. The John is a very common name. So he was a very common man. He was the son of Zebedee and the son of Salome. And little is known about his parents, but that's all we know. We know their names. In the gospel, though, John was almost always mentioned with his brother, James. Now, James, whenever they were mentioned, whenever the duo were mentioned, James was always mentioned first, which may mean that he was the older of the two and John was the younger. And in fact, in Christian tradition, they placed John the Apostle as the youngest of the 12 disciples. And whether that was the case or not, that is uh, up to God to know. Both brothers worked alongside their father as fishermen. And they were most likely richer than the average family at that time because they were able to have hired servants, which was uh, something reserved only for those with a little bit more cash. Now, the start of James and John's journey occurred one day when Jesus came by and called the brothers to follow him. And at this time, they were with their father. They were on their fishing boat. They were mending. They were repairing their nets. And Jesus came strolling by, and he called these two brothers to follow him. Now, just moments ago, Jesus had been in another shore, and he had called Peter and Andrew, also two brothers who were fishermen and who were partners with James and John. And now he was doing the same, and he was inviting James and John as well to follow him and become fishers of men. Now, you might just ignore or skim this fact, but at this first instance where they are introduced, we already see John display something very incredible. In Matthew 4, 21 to 22, it says, And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now, at this point in time, Jesus was only starting his earthly ministry. Maybe he was renowned in some smaller areas, but his reputation was definitely not well known at this time. He hasn't even performed his first miracle yet, which was the turning of water into wine at the feast in Cana. But even though Jesus' reputation was obscure and not really well known yet, for some reason, James and John, they both responded to Jesus, immediately left what they were doing and followed after him. Now, I'm very sure that the testimony of Peter and Andrew played a big part in their decision. Now, they were partners. Peter and Andrew and James and John were partners. They were both fishermen. And Peter and Andrew, they just witnessed something incredible. They had a whole day that they were out fishing. They had no nothing to show for it, and then Jesus told them to do a certain instruction, and then they, lo and behold, they had an incredible draft of fish. And I'm sure that Peter and Andrew told this to James and John, and this excited the brothers, excited enough that they left everything. They left their family, they left their occupation, they left all of their present attachments to follow Jesus. 
they left immediately and they were excited to see where this road would take them, where this path would take them. Now, they, these brothers, take, uh, I take them as a type to, who have had the mentality of do now, think later. I can imagine that James and John, they didn't really think of where Jesus will take them, but they just decided to forsake everything. Do now, think later. And they immediately obeyed Jesus. Now, this zeal, this enthusiasm that they showed in this one instance would actually become a defining attribute for these two brothers. The reason why this stage was called the Son of Thunder is because Jesus himself gave these two brothers the nickname or the surname of Boa Nerges, meaning the sons of thunder. Now, that doesn't mean that they were the sons of Zeus or anything like that. The meaning, the sons of thunder, the word thunder in the Greek is actually related to the, thund- the word vremo, which means to roar. To thunder or to roar. Now, if I were to ask you to imagine what a person who roars or thunders would look like, you probably wouldn't imagine a timid or a shy person. You would imagine somebody like Evangelist Schwanke, someone with incredible zeal, someone incredibly bold and passionate, and a person who attracts attention wherever he goes. And I can imagine that James and John were similar people, the sons of thunder, very zealous, very passionate. Now, the opinion is divided whether this surname was positive or negative. Some people say that it carries a positive connotation and that it is simply to show how passionate they were to follow Christ. Some say that it was a negative connotation, which it was supposed to show how easily angry they were, how, how, how short their tempers were. But I don't believe this view personally because I don't believe Jesus would give a surname that was meant to be demeaning or derogatory and humiliating. So I don't think it's a negative connotation. I believe that the Sons of Thunder, that name, is a neutral title. All it did was it pointed out their passion, that they were passionate individuals. Now, passion, isn't passionate, being passionate, isn't that a positive trait? Isn't that a positive attribute? Well, not always. The act of being passionate for something is neutral. You can be passionate about sinful things, or you can be passionate about godly things. Being passionate doesn't, isn't necessarily positive or negative. It depends on what you're passionate about. Earlier in John's life, when he was, had this nickname, the surname of Son of Thunder, there were many instances in which John wrongly misplaced his passion. In Mark 10, if you, want, uh, if you can turn with me there to Mark 10, verses 35 to 45, we're not going to read the entire thing. In this passage, we see a very important lesson on humility and servanthood. But this lesson was brought about because of James and John's request. They requested, James and John requested that they, be, that they would sit by the right and left hand of God up in glory. That they would sit right there with God up in glory, up in eternity. Now, obviously, this request was tainted with spiritual pride. They, they thought that they were better than all the other disciples. They thought that they deserved those two spots. So that we can see that for a fact that they were prideful by saying this. But at its root, 
The reason why James and John made such a request was because they were passionate about being with Jesus for all of eternity. At their core, they just wanted to be with God, but they just tainted it with their pride. They were passionate, but it was misplaced. Their zeal elevated themselves above all the other disciples, and you can see the disciples actually were displeased with them. They, were, they, did, they did not like what James and John did. In Luke, we see another instance. In Luke 9.49, we see John exercising spiritual pride once again. There was a young man who was casting out demons over here, but he wasn't part of the 12 disciples, and so John told them to stop. John told him to stop because you are not with us. You are not part of our team. And Jesus had to correct him again that those who are not against us are for us. He is doing a good work casting out those demons. Why did you stop him? Later on in the same chapter, when the Samaritans from a certain village would not receive Jesus, James and John said this, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consumed them, even as Elias did. These two were so passionate about defending the Lord that they were not willing that Jesus would be disrespected and that they were even willing to destroy an entire village filled with people. They wanted to command fire from heaven to destroy this village because they wouldn't receive Jesus. Now, obviously, that act is completely against what Jesus stood for. He was not here to destroy people. He was here to save people. But the reason why they wanted to destroy that village, that at the root of it, was because they were passionate about defending Jesus. It wasn't done properly. This passion was misplaced. But you could see that there was passion within these two brothers. All that was needed was for this passion to be refined. The Sons of Thunder was a fitting nickname because they were truly passionate for what they did. They often spoke their mind but they often also misused their passion. But we see later on in his life that this passion, once it is refined, once God gets a hold of it, this passion can, will be used to build up other individuals. You know, thunder, the thunder, we think of it as something terrifying. It is at once terrifying. There's a lot of people who are terrified of thunder. My mom is one of them. But that same thunder that terrifies people is also the same thunder that purifies the air and fertilizes the soil. What is something that is at first very intimidating, once you look at, into it more, it has more benefits to it. Because every single thing has a benefit, some pros and cons to it. Passion like thunder has the benefits and disadvantages. And in the beginning of John's life, he was more so in this, leaning more towards the disadvantages of having passion. But as he spent more time with God, his passion became more and more refined. Though he messed up and was very impulsive with his passion, it was very clear to all the other disciples that he was loyal, that he was faithful to Christ. But you know, if he had continued in such a destructive manner, willing to eliminate people to defend Christ, I don't believe he would have been the one to receive the revelatory vision. I don't think he would have been one of the disciples. He would have been kicked out if he was destroyed a Samaritan village. But John's passion defined his future ministry. And similarly, our passion for Christ also defines us.
Wesley Duell, he was a man wholly given to missions and scripture reading. He once said this, all other passions build upon or flow from your passion for Jesus. A passion for souls grows out of a passion for Christ. A passion for missions builds upon a passion for Christ. The most crucial danger to a Christian, whatever his role, is to lack a passion for Christ. The most direct route to personal renewal and new effectiveness is a new, all-consuming passion for Jesus. And John the Apostle, he did not lack in this area. He was very passionate for Christ. But what refined John's passion? What changed him from being an immature believer into one of the most foundational elders of the early church? Now, fast forward a couple years, we arrived at the second stage of John's life. Two, the beloved apostle. I think it's one of more, his more famously known nicknames is the beloved apostle. Now, I'll read three verses here and just listen to the, the repeated key phrase. Listen to the phrase that I repeat all three times in all three verses. In John 13, 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. In John 19, 25 to 27, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. And lastly, in John 21, 20, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following which he also leaned on, the, on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayed me? Now in those three references, what was the key phrase? The key phrase was, The disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus, no doubt, loved all the disciples. He loves all of us, too. He loves all of his children. But it is interesting to note that only with John follows the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, why is that? Did, he have, did Jesus have favoritism? Now, in Scripture, it was, it was no secret that John was special and very dear to Jesus. Along with Peter, and along with his brother James, John made up the inner circle of the disciples. Within the twelve, there were three individuals that God um, uh, had, were around, was around with more than all the others, than all the rest. This inner circle, they witnessed the transfiguration of Christ, and God asked them to accompany him in the garden before, the night, before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion. This was an inner circle of John, Peter, and James. And he was part of that. But not only was John special to Jesus, Jesus was incredibly special to John. From those verses that I read above, first of all, we see John leaning on Jesus' bosom, leaning on his chest while they were, uh, uh, while they were having supper. Now this act of leaning upon someone's chest it's a very special form of endearment. I don't just lean on someone's chest every day. I only do that for, with two people, my mom and my dad. That is the only two people in the world that I lean on their chest. It is a very special form of endearment. And John was doing that with Jesus. And Jesus allowed him 
to do so. They had a very special relationship. Not only that, we see John standing at the foot of the cross. He was beside Jesus while he was being crucified. All of the other disciples have already fled. All of the other disciples have already taken to fight and have, and have hidden. Others may be watching from afar, from a, from a distance. But who was there at the foot of the cross? It was John. John was there with all the women, with Jesus' mother Mary. He was right there with Jesus in his hour. Not only that, John promised to take care of Mary for the rest of his life, and he did so. The disciple took her unto his own home. She took care of Jesus' mother. As well, when it came to looking and entering into Jesus' empty tomb, the first disciple to enter into the empty tomb of Christ was none other than John. He was the last to leave the cross, but he was the first to enter Jesus' empty tomb, beating Peter. Now you might ask, why did they have such a close relationship with one another? Was this favoritism? Simply this, the reason why John and Jesus had such a special relationship is because it was mutual. It was mutual. Jesus loved John, that's obvious, but John reciprocated that love back to Jesus. For many today, Jesus is doing his part in the relationship. He loves us incredibly so. But on our end, we only claim to love him. Claiming to love Jesus and actually loving him with all your heart are two very different lifestyles. John was the latter. He truly loved God with all his heart and he lived like, like it. But many Christians today only claim that we love God with all our power. John loved and knew Jesus so much that he was able to declare in his gospel that the word was God. He has such a special relationship with Jesus that he knew for a 100% fact that Jesus, the Savior that he served with all along those years, was the God Jehovah himself. And it was, he declared that openly in the first chapter of his book. He wanted to get that across that the word was God, that Jesus was God. That is how much he loved and knew Christ. Now, a one-sided relationship can never prosper. In, in, the, in earthly relationships, it can never prosper. In dating, if only one person is, doing, is exerting any effort, eventually that person who was exerting all the effort will get tired and move on to somebody who actually cares. In a friendship, if only one side is actually bothering to schedule hangouts and the other person just keeps ignoring and ignoring and ignoring, guess what? This person will look for other friends who is willing to hang out with him, who is willing to actually talk to him and get to know him. One-sided relationships will never prosper. God has done and is doing his part, but it is us that would have to step up. Like John, we have to spiritually lean on God's bosom, spiritually abide at the foot of the cross, we can't literally do that, but we can spiritually do that. We can, we can have dependence on him. Ask yourself these questions. Is he always in your thoughts? Is God always in your thoughts? Does your actions reflect your claim that you really love God with all your heart? 
Is your love for God so evident and so obvious that others don't even question it? Is your relationship with God today one-sided? Now at the last stage of his life, we come to the third stage, John the Revelator. We come to an aged John, some quite a few years past, and we have a very old John at this point. His brother James has already been killed, has already been martyred. He was the first of the 12 disciples to have been killed off and the only disciple whose death is recorded in Scripture, killed by Herod Agrippa. At this time, Christian persecution was commonplace. These days, we can get away with sharing the gospel. We'll get made fun of it from time to time, but that's really nothing. Back then, you shared the gospel. Next thing you know, you're in a vat of boiling oil. Next thing you know, you're going to be crucified upside down like Peter, or tradition says so at least. They will kill you in the most vile ways back then for sharing the gospel. In fact, during the writing of Revelation, John himself was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel. That was his crime. Traditions say that he was even placed in a cauldron of boiling oil. Obviously, that's not in Scripture. We can't say that for sure. But we don't know. We can never find that out for sure. But God knows. But what we do know about John is that after all these years, after all of the persecution that has passed by, John stayed faithful. Not once did he fall away from the faith. In fact, his faith just grew stronger and stronger. In Galatians 2.9, it says, And when James, Cephas, which was Simon Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, who seemed to be pillars. Now, everyone knows that, that, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. But at this time, Peter, James, and John were the pillars of it, were the foundational pieces of the early church. Now, it's no surprise that the one who spent the most time with Christ also became the spiritual leaders. It's no surprise. But John continued to water the faith of all the believers back then through his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, when we think of New Testament uh, figures, we think of Peter and we think of Paul. Peter was the, the, the chief elder. He was the elder in Jerusalem. And Paul obviously was the, the mouthpiece of the gospel, mouthpiece for the Gentiles. Not often do we think about John. Though his ministry was more quiet and more subdued, does not lessen the fact that it was impactful for the early believers. John was given the opportunity to see the end times of humanity. It's recorded in the Revelation if you want to read it. He was able to see things that are completely out of this world, that is completely beyond our mind. He was able to see the throne in heaven and everything worshiping God. He sees the entire tribulation period and he experiences how, how great God's wrath is. He sees heaven open. He sees the king of kings. He saw all the hosts and angels of heaven that we can't even imagine the number of. He sees Satan, our greatest enemy, being cast into the lake of fire. He sees the new heaven and the new earth, things that we can only theorize about and picture what they look like. He even sees the heavenly city. He sees all of these things through this heavenly vision. And that is just a small portion of what John saw. Now think about it. 
If all these things, incredible things, was given to a man who was not trustworthy, who was not faithful, who would believe him? If a man who received it was untrustworthy, every other Christian at that time would have accused him of being, uh, of dreaming, would have accused him of hallucination, would have accused him of being drunk. The only reason why revelation was so widely accepted even and ended in the canonization, the canonization of Scripture was included in our Bible today is because it came from a faithful man like John. John's word, everybody knew that John was a trustworthy fellow. A man who was so bold to preach the gospel for all of his life, a man that everyone knew to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, a man that everyone knew who loved God with all of his heart, that he even made it the great theme of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. A man who was a pillar of the church. Everyone knew that that level of man, that type of man, would be easily trustworthy. Not only trustworthy in the sight of God, that's why God gave it to John, but also trustworthy in the sight of all other believers. A pastor once said, our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility alone to make it effective. Too many times we focus on trying to improve our techniques on how to do this or how to do that, increase our knowledge, increase our strength, increase our technique or whatever else. We're trying to do it in our own power. But all, is, all God is asking us to do is to be faithful. And he will use our faithfulness and effect something great out of that. You don't have to stand out and become the most influential Christian of your generation to be commended by God. A pastor doesn't need to have a church with over 1,000 members to be approved in the sight of God. A soul winner doesn't need to lead hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ to gain the approval of God. A tither doesn't need to give millions and millions of dollars to be a good steward. All that is required of us as believers is to be faithful to Him in the greatest capacity that we are able to do so. The last verse I'll ask you to look at tonight is 1 Corinthians 4.2. 1 Corinthians 4.2. A very short verse. Many have already committed to memory. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says this. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is required that a man be found faithful. A pastor that serves for years but only has 30 members in his church will still have God's approval. Why? As long as he is faithful. A soul winner, though he may never personally lead a person to Christ in all of his life, if he was a faithful soul winner, God will still love him and bless him and have his approval. A tither who can give only a meager amount of money, as long as he's being faithful in giving, God will bless him, and God will approve of him. It's not about what, how much we can do. It's about the fact that we will do whatever we can faithfully. John may have not stood out as much as Peter or Paul or John the Baptist, and especially not as much as Jesus Christ. But because of his faithfulness throughout all those years, God blessed him with an incredible revelation. Now, I'm going to take the 
I'm going to come to a landing here. There are many aspects of, Christ, of Scripture that are never, will never be fully understood, and some are very difficult to understand. There are whole books in the Bible that just completely rattle our brain. There are biblical principles, biblical doctrines that just don't, we can't fully comprehend it, like the Trinity, like the sovereignty and the free will of man. There are just some things that we just can't wrap our mind around. And they will definitely not be understood by the wicked, by the backslidden, by the unsaved. Our eyes, like John, needs to be opened by God alone and by God himself so that we can behold wondrous things out of his law. John was a man full of boldness, full of passion, so much so that he was given the surname of the Son of Thunder. His zeal to follow Jesus was unbridled at first, but once refined by God, this incredible passion to know the Lord resulted in him having a special, special relationship with Christ, becoming the disciple whom Jesus loved. And even after the ascension of his Savior, John continued to be faithful, becoming a foundational pillar of the early church, teaching and watering the faith of the early believers through his epistles. And guess what? He continued to faithfully preach until he was finally exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where he would receive the divine revelation from God. So what is the takeaway, you might be asking? What is the takeaway from tonight's sermon? How are we to relate John's life to our own? The answer is in three attributes that we desperately need today. We need passion, we need love, and we need faithfulness. If you want your eyes to behold wondrous things out of the Word of God, spiritual things like John saw the revelatory vision, then be passionate in following Jesus. Love him and everything righteous with all of your being and be faithful in every little thing that you do. Dedicate it all to the Lord. Passion, love, and faithfulness. John had those three things and more, and God revealed to him a heavenly vision. And I believe that if we show passion for Christ, a love for him, and faithfulness to him, I believe that he will open our eyes and allow us to behold wondrous things that we have never seen before in Scripture, and allow us to take another step in a Christian walk. I don't know about you, but I hate being in the same level all the time and just being in the same mediocre state that I'm in. I want to grow closer and closer to Christ, and I will never achieve that if, I, if many of these things are still hidden in my eyes. I need to be passionate, loving, and faithful to Him. If you have those three attributes, God will not withhold the wondrous truths of Scripture from you. Now, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this message that you have given me. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be passionate in serving you, loving, with, loving you with all of our spirit, with all of our soul and all of our body. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful, incredibly faithful to you in every little thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, allow us to 
behold wondrous things from your law. I pray, Lord, that we would just help us to dedicate and always conform to your image and not to conform to the image that the world wants us to have. I pray, Lord, for the rest of the service, that you bless it. And I pray that you just allow us to all return home uh, safe and sound, Lord. For this all you name. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.